Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, it's enough about me, but there is no Kirk Minahan. Sorry, Mike Matnansky in, filling in for my buddy Kirk, who is uh, traveling this week. Uh, he's back next week as he and I will be on this podcast with a very special Ask Kirk Anything where we asked, you guys asked the questions and they were pretty detailed. They were pretty inside radio and he answered them all. So that's going to be next week on this podcast. He asked me to host this week and the question from Ben, the producer, was who do you want to have on? And I, my first and only answer was Bob Newmeyer. Uh, Bob Newmeyer is a guy who was part of the Big Six in the 80s doing TV here in town. Uh, he's done everything. He's done play-by-play for the Bruins. He has done radio on WEEI. He has done TV in Boston. And nationally, he's done it all. Olympics, horse racing, track and field, uh, you name it. And he's also a guy who reached out to me a couple of years ago. This station here made a change, and I was off the midday show. And first email I got from outside the building was from Bob Newmeyer with just a, a positive sort of, hey, keep your head up. And I didn't know him from a, a hole in the wall. And uh, I think he is a very interesting guy. I think he's got some great stories about uh, the 1980s and what was going on there during that time. Some very pointed thoughts about radio now and younger people in the media. So it was an uh, absolute thrill to hang out for Kirk's podcast and talk with uh, Bob Newmeyer, who you guys now see on Comcast all the time. So when I was growing up in Pepperell, Massachusetts, we didn't have cable, and it was there were three stations, four, five, and seven, and it was the three tag teams. It was John Dennis and uh, Gene Levanche. It was Mike Lynch and, and Mike Dowling, and it's, uh, Ed Harding was somewhere in there. And it was Channel 4, Bob LaBelle, and Bob Newmeyer. And in my household, we were a Numi household. My mom loved Numi. I loved Numi. The, is the way he approached these things there. Bob, you were in, in that group of six that at that time in the 80s and 90s in sports in Boston, you guys were it for us sports fans who are watching on TV. <laughs> yeah, the years have flown by. There's no doubt about that. But uh, back at that time, the, uh, the local NBC, CBS, ABC affiliates, and we were one of them, uh, no doubt uh, ruled the day, and uh, people who were interested in sports uh, watched our shows nightly. And um, I think during the glory years, which I think probably for us were maybe the 1980s because Boston had uh, some superb teams, and local news then was different than it is now. I mean, it was like the signature sports moment was to tune into. Um, Bob Lobel, who I, I happen to work with at Channel 4, or maybe Mike or John or whatever, and uh, and got your sports that way. Now it's entirely different. Now it's, you know, it's radio, it's sports talk, it's opinion, it's not fact necessarily. Um, and I think that the news itself has been changed from, you know, weather orientation now and quick news and all of that stuff in sports locally, I think television-wise, has taken a back seat. And now it's only the real important local stuff in which people really tune in for. And to do that now, things are so immediate with social media and with radio and all that stuff that the idea of like waiting around till 
you know, the highlights at 11 o'clock are, are way, way long gone by, passe, et cetera, and we've moved into a new era. Well, it used to be five or six minutes for you guys. You had in a segment, right? Am I, am I shortchanging you how much time you used to have in the heyday of the 80s, Bob, for a, a big sports segment on TV? No, we used to do more than that. I mean, we had a 60-minute signature newscast from 6 to 7, and Bob Lobel was kind of the front man, and I was a weekend guy, so I would contribute my two, two-and-a-half-minute piece on whatever was the subject of the day, and maybe Alice Cook would contribute with a two- or two-and-a-half-minute piece, or maybe it might have been you know, Don Shane or Lou Tilly or Jerry Azar or Mike Dowling or whoever was... Uh, you know, on the staff that time, and um, yeah, no doubt about it, but those times have changed, and now it's, you know, those guys that are doing sports locally, they're lucky to get two and a half, three million, uh, three minutes in a truncated, you know, 30-minute show in which you may see two highlights, but the days of the features and putting mics on umpires and music and all that stuff, which I really enjoyed doing at that time, those are now passe. So, uh, you know, that kind of featurey kind of local television has gone by the boards for better or for worse. So in the 80s, you had the Celtics great run. You had the Patriots getting to a Super Bowl. You had the, 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 the Red Sox and what happened in 86 and the Bruins. And it was, as you said, a high-flying time. Uh, Nomi, how competitive was it for you guys? Were you, were, were you friends with the other stations? Or was this Anchorman where if you were, you were a Channel 4 guy, it was only Channel 4, and you didn't like the other guys? Oh, well, it depends on the personalities. I mean, I try to get along with everybody and always have. Um, you know, I do my job and, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But, yes, it was competitive to a point where I know um, our news director at the time, at one time at Channel 4, uh, his name was Jeff Rosser, uh, we actually had a party in which uh, he actually used the theme of this is war, meaning ratings for BZ, Channel 4, which I was on for about 18 or 19 years, versus Channel 5, versus Channel 7. You know, it was a war, if you will, for ratings and for really greedy management, I think, because at that time, it was only three stations. And they were all making a lot of cash. Don't get me wrong. But the major players, the news people, the weather people, you know, they were making salary-wise, I mean, six figures. I mean, Bob LaBelle and Liz Walker and Natalie Jacobson and, you know, go right on down the line. I mean, they were literally huge stars in the marketplace. Um, I, for one, was more of a utility guy. I could do a lot of different kinds of things. Still am to this day. But, um, you know, I can say that I think I contributed to what we did at that time. And if someone was pleased to tune into Channel 4 because of my contributions to it, then um, it makes me happy. There's no doubt about that. But time has flown by. And you know, uh, Bob's done his thing, and I've done my thing, and, you know, some other people have moved on. Don Shane moved to Detroit. Lou Tilly moved to Philadelphia. Mike Dowling went to Channel 5. Uh, Jerry Azar went to New York City. Uh, I think Alice Cook has retired, I think. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, things have changed. I've moved on. They've moved on. So that's the way things work. Well, Dino, I, I don't feel – Dino talks about it on the air. It sounds like he and Gene, you know, had a, a bad breakup, and, and it did not end well for two guys who worked together. It sounds like – like you don't have any of those you know, bad stories with the guys that you work with and competed with during a very competitive time there in the 80s. Yeah, I try not to. I mean, I don't think I have. I mean, look, look. I think, you know, I work very closely with, you know, our producer, Alan Miller and Jackie Canale when she was there. And, uh, 
and, and Bob itself, but it wasn't like ever we were typically, you know, would socialize together. It was more of a business arrangement, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, I did my thing, Bob did his, uh, again, Don Shane did his, and all of that stuff. So I don't think that I was ever buddy-buddy, quote, if you will, with either the guys that I work with on Channel 4 or Mike Lynch or John Dennis or any of them. Not to say that I wasn't friendly with them, because I was, and I think they had a job to do. I had a job to do. But um, never, never, never in my wildest dreams would I think of socializing with any of them. Not that I particularly <laughs> wanted to to begin with. Um, it just never turned out that way. So there weren't these wild parties in the 80s with all these sports anchors getting <laughs> well, together? Might have been, but I wasn't part of it. There's no doubt about I, that. I, I said no, this I, vision. I, of I, wasn't part, I was not part of it. I was not privy to it, although they may have actually existed, but uh, not for me, no. You were there, what, 18, 19 years from 81 yes. to, to 2000 for, doing TV yeah. here in Boston? Yeah, I started out in Hartford. I did the Whalers until I, um, until I kind of used, uh, I shouldn't say used, but I... I uh, had an audition to, if you will, over the summertime. This is when I was a young kid pop after spending about four years in the World Hockey Association, which was great, by the way, as a whaler announcer in Hartford. And um, there was an opening for weekends at WFSB in Hartford. And believe it or not, uh, Muhammad Ali, of all people, passed away a few weeks ago, was crucial to my getting my first job because at the time, uh, again, I was given um, apprenticeship, if you will, to be on TV, although people knew who I was from my radio work with the Whalers. But uh, I tried TV that summer, and the news director said to me, look, we'll see how it goes for three or four months. If you click, we'll give you the job full time. If you don't, you can go back to the Whalers, or you can try your TV hand in Walla Walla, Washington, or Presque Isle, Maine, or wherever it was. And so it would happen that on some day I was assigned to to do a piece on Muhammad Ali's visit to the Newington Children's Hospital outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Well, I put that piece on the air at 6 o'clock, uh, Ali's visit, and um, it was uh, easy pickings because Ali was great with the kids. The kids were great to him. And they got something like my 12 or 1,500 phone calls wow. to repeat the segment on the 11 o'clock news. Now, the next day, the news director called me in and said, Son, you've got the job full time. <laughs> so imagine that. So that's really how I started. And then, um, you know, through an illness that my father had in Boston, I met Bob Lobel at the Beanpot Luncheon. This was back in like 19, I'm going to say 80. And uh, they had an opening for a weekend guy. And, you know, I applied and probably had no business getting it, but I did. So I got back home, you know, to Boston and did my weekend stuff and worked with Bob and you know, the rest is, is history. And from there, it's been just, you know, one item after another, whether it be Bruins play-by-play or uh, WEEI talk radio or NBC full-time, Olympics, football, track and field, diving, uh, you name it, Comcast, uh, doing all kinds of different stuff, you know, um, yeah, it's been a whirlwind, but I've I've liked every minute and second of it, and I think that I've been versatile enough that I've been able to handle all of the jobs that have been presented to me, and I kind of like it that way because I haven't been typecast in any one particular motive as being, you know, an anchorman or a reporter. Uh, but I've done it all. I mean, now I. 
tend to be more of an anchor person at Comcast, but I also work on Gary Tangway's shows, which is an opinion-based show, or Michael Felger's late-night show, which is an opinion-based show. Uh, I'll do whatever they say. I'm totally indebted to Comcast for uh, a health event that I went through about a year and a half ago, and they've been terrific with me with that. And um, you know, on and on it goes. I mean, the world never stops. Well, so we hey, continue to we continue to go at it, no matter what we try to do. See, it's funny. All these th- all these things you talk about, Bob, and you yeah. have a really unique career. Uh, it, it's it's this industry now is so different. But you were part sure. of it, Channel Four. If I think back on it now. That sports final show that aired on Sunday nights that you guys did and you were a part of, like that, to me, that was sort of the beginning of, I don't want to say the monster, but Felger's show and Gary's show and all these TV opinion talk shows and sports talk radio to an extent, knew me. That started on Sunday nights with you guys sitting around talking sports for a half hour, going out and getting beers afterwards. Got young guys like me setting a VCR tape because my parents wouldn't let me stay up late. That, that started this whole thing on sports final. Yeah, I think I think you're right, but I think that a lot of things have changed. Um, I've been at this now for I don't know how long it is, 35, 40 years, whatever it is. But things have changed rather dramatically, and I think when I started, it was more news, if you will, oriented. And sure. I think what has changed is that um, opinion is now extremely important, whether it be on radio or television. But I always think that, in spite of it being the most popular gig, if you will, that that news and events will always trump opinion, because without the news and facts, there would be no opinion. So, you know, that's, uh, I think that's pretty obvious, that the opinion part of it is very, very strong now, whether it be talk radio, whether it be uh, TV shows, or what have you. I mean, I think the advent of social media, I think the fact that uh, when I started pundits, if you will, that worked in newspapers. And I worked in a newspaper, and I loved every second of it. Um, Now they've made their bones on television and radio because they know what they're talking about. Some are good at it. Some aren't very good at it. But the newspaper part of it to some of them is passe. I mean, they'd rather be on TV. They'd rather be recognized walking down the street. Um, Maybe they're a columnist, but in likelihood, they're a pundit. you know, I think the women part of it has taken off. And so now you see women patrolling sidelines in sports events. And uh, and as as they should, they have a very difficult job. I wouldn't want hmm. it. But, uh, you know, I think that's part of it, too. So you, you add them all up together and you see how things have changed over the years. Well, see, so you, you do TV for so long here. And then yeah. you, you make the move over to, you know, the monster, which is sports talk radio. And here's what I remember about... That time, because I was ju- had just graduated from or was graduating from UConn in, in 2002, and Eddie Andelman's leaving. I'd interned for that show, and Eddie and Dale, and they're breaking up. And you know, Jason Wolf does this huge nationwide search, and they're going to find the next host for Dale. And you end up as the host. Then the rumors I've heard, like since then, this great story of it was a bag job. You had that job from the beginning, knew me, and it was a big PR. You knew you were getting that job. Is that a is that a true story? Is that one of those urban legends about you coming to EEI? Absolutely true. No, it was true. It was kind of a wink, wink deal. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I really had nothing to do with that. I, you know, I had talked to the management there, and there are um, there are two things that I kind of quote, quit, if you will. Hmm. One of them was I walked out of BZ after 18 or 19 years in the year 2000 after doing five years of Bruins play-by-play, oh, by the way, um, without a job. And I got hired by WEEI 
to uh, do the midday show 10 to 2 with Dale. This was, um, I don't know, circa 2001, maybe somewhere in there. And, um, and, and I did that, so I quit. I, I quit Channel 4 because of that. I probably should have left earlier, but I didn't. At any rate, uh, I had no job, but I had a lot of faith in myself, and that's the key. So WB, I should say uh, WEI uh, hired me to do uh, a radio gig, and when that three years was up was when I negotiated for a new deal and was uh, disappointed that it didn't come to fruition. And I enjoyed the time that I spent there. But, you know, my 10 to 2 shift, which, you know, actually doing the job was difficult, but I enjoyed it. Well, you guys um, had good success there, too. Right? You guys are number yeah, one consistently yeah. there in that time yeah. slot. And, and I didn't particularly enjoy, you know, what I thought was kind of a shock-like atmosphere. And maybe it was just me. And I didn't get into the politics I never have. Um, so typically for me... Uh, a day would be, I'm on the year at 10, I'm in the office at 9.45. Hmm. I leave at 2.01. <laughs> um, and never the twain shall meet. So I didn't have much to do with Glenn or Jerry or I think even Jerry was there then. Um, John Dennis was certainly there. Well, I think John and Jerry, uh, I think if I, the lineup correctly was John and Jerry in the morning, yeah. you and Dale in the midday, and Glenn doing the, the old big show in the afternoons. Yeah. And, and I was a sub for a while, too. I mean, when I, when I left, you know, we had a, a, a bit of a falling out with the management there, and I wanted X amount of money, and they wouldn't give it to me. And so that's when I quit job number two. And how that worked out well for me was by, you know, being a free agent, if you will, after that radio gig. And that was the weekend of the Super Bowl when the Patriots played the Eagles in Jacksonville. I'll never forget it. Um, that was the end of my rope at WEEI. And sure enough, less than a year after that, I got a full-time job with NBC Sports. And, you know, unbeknownst to anybody, because I don't really brag about it, but, I mean, I was on Football Night in America. I did three Olympics, uh, 2004, 2006, 2008. Um, you know, and I'm proud to say that locally that I may be one of the few guys that have actually been on network television. Still am. You know, with the Triple Crown and with uh, the Kentucky Derby, which gets a lot of viewers, and the Belmont Stakes and the Breeders' Cup and all that that kind of stuff. Um, And I find that experience, uh, found it to be an exhilarating one. And, and boy, if you work in the business, um, I think all of us as reporters would like to one day work on the Olympics. And not only did I work on them, I was on track and field, which, you know, one can say – you know, the three glamour sports in the summer games, gymnastics would be one, and track and field uh, would be right up there in, in that realm as well, swimming number three. So between gymnastics, swimming, and track and field. And I was in the mix zone for two uh, Summer Olympics when I was the reporter for the United States of America. Imagine that. <laughs> NBC Sports. <laughs> And Usain Bolt walks by, and we had one shot at him for three questions or two questions. He's huffing and puffing after setting a world record. You know, that would be, you know, transcribed that night for the world to see 25 million people strong. So imagine the pressure on me to try and get the questions right, try to develop a rapport with whoever I was talking to. I didn't know track backwards and forwards. I did, you know, I was on the Luge and Bobsled team for a while. Did I know Luge and Bobsled that well? No, but I knew... 
about people. I knew about what to ask, and at least I tried to know about it. So I, one, of my, one of my things that I always like to do in my business is to know what I need to know and nothing more, because you get obliterated with you know uh, minutia, if you will. And um, so I think I've been able to ferret out what I need to know, what I don't need to know, and um, and move on from there. Did you like the travel of those Olympics, Newman? That's, no, a, I that's a lot of work for that. No, I didn't like traveling when I did hockey. I love hockey. You know, I've done 10 years of my life, five years in the WHA, five years in the NHL, um, met some tremendous people along the way, coaches, general managers, uh, players, etc. Um, love the game, still love the game. Watch it religiously. Uh, and, you know, the travel to the Olympics, I mean, the Olympics are, you know, unto themselves are um, a very interesting uh, ordeal. And I say ordeal because we work hard. And I know that the people in NBC are doing their best because I was part of that, to put the best foot forward each and every day. And you get caught up in that. And I don't want to be one of the ones to screw it up. So, uh, you know, I put my best foot forward. So, you know, when I think about my Olympic experience, I say, boy, was I lucky that I was uh, actually a reporter that someone, Dick Ebersol, in fact, was the chairman of NBC at that time, and Sam Flood and all the people that were there um, gave me uh, the opportunity to be a reporter at track and field, be like the number two man, if you will, in the mix zone, because the host country has always got the the host position. So I was able to do two Summer Olympics and one Winter Olympics. And, uh, you know, who could say that? I mean, that's 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 an experience. I'll well, never it, it's the highest of high. So you, you loved covering it. You didn't like the travel uh, from back to the radio part. Did it was three years. You mentioned it. Did you like the day to day doing sports talk? You talked about your schedule. Did you like sports talk radio? Did you like sitting there with Dale and, and every day for four hours going over the you know the news of the day, whatever season it was? Did that, that appeal to you during those three years? Well, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I, I think that by and large, I'm an information guy. So one of the little things that we kind of coined is the knew me research team, if you will. And I kind of always enjoyed uh, digging up facts about, uh, and I'll give you a, for example, I still use it now sure. in terms of the baseball show on Comcast in that, like, what is really the key to making the playoffs in baseball? Is it hitting? Is it starting pitching? Is it relief pitching? So I would go back for, you know, 15 years and figure out who was number one in the American League in hitting or who was number one in saves and all of that stuff and try to link it to, you know, teams that would make the playoffs. Like, what is the the modus operandi, if you will? And that's how it all kind of started. And whether it was um, baseball or hockey or whatever, I would try to dig something up. And I used the Internet, which, you know, thank goodness, the invention of the internet because i think it saved us um you know the callers were the callers uh you know i enjoyed working with dale he was a professional at all times you know i didn't socialize with him but i didn't need to you know he was you know we were on the air four hours a day and um you know i guess some of it was good some of it maybe was mediocre some of it wasn't so good i don't know i mean it's some for someone else to decide did i enjoy it yes would i want to do it again no because I just don't have the stomach mutt to go through four hours of what those guys have to go through. And, you know, reading some of these, you know, I, I, 
made the mistake of reading like text messages before a show and the anger and vitriol that people have um I don't quite understand, to be honest with you. I mean, why? I mean, what, what did I do wrong? I mean, you know, I was a bum. The show was boring. This was that. This was that. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. And that's why maybe why I don't get on. I don't go on social media because of that fact. I mean, there's enough insecurity in the business to begin with. Like, why would I want to pick up a phone and read about how bad I was on the air? I wouldn't. No, and that's, so, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, so why bother? I mean, I think social media has its place. And, you know, I'm a news gatherer, if you will. I mean, a lot of our stuff, you know, uh, for reporters that we trust that put stuff out there and tweet this and that, that we don't have, um, we didn't have access to and now we do. I mean, I think that's valuable, but most of it is nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Most of it is self-promotion from people. And if there's anything that I despise more about this business is the self-promotion that people have. And I don't like it. I don't like it for reporters. I don't like it for athletes. I don't like it for coaches. And when someone who I think is a self-promoter uses this to, quote, build a brand, please do something with your life to make me proud of you or to make me respect you. Not some bullshit line that I read about on social media that you tweet out about something that someone else picked up. I mean, I don't buy it. I never will. I don't need it. And like I said, the business is insecure enough as it is without me having to get involved in it. See, and this is where I envy you because I know you're not on social media. You're not on. You're not on Twitter. You're an information guy, which is crazy to me because that's. The, I, there are times I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I will be at dinner with my wonderful wife and two young kids, and I will be the dummy. Uh, the asshole scrolling in and looking and updating Twitter to see what's going on in the world of sports because, God forbid, I si- I, I miss out on something on Twitter. And that's a problem, Bob, for me. And I, I'm envious of, of you specifically because you hate text messaging. You don't like social media. You don't like Twitter. You don't care about any of that. It's not on your radar whatsoever. I want to be as anonymous as possible, <laughs> which, is a, which is an anathema in this business because most people have just the opposite effect. Maybe there are times when I look at it and I say, maybe I, maybe I should be a little more active here, or maybe should I, I should promote myself a little more than I do. But why? I mean, you know what's important to me, Mud? What's important to me is, uh, is how I treat my, you know, my wife, my relationship with my family. Uh, that's what's important. And as you go through life, you find out, look, work is important to me. Um, Handicapping horses is important to me. Uh, My physical recovery is still very, very important to me. But by and large, what trumps everything is the relationship I have with now my second wife, the family, uh, my stepson, other people as well, because that's what's important. So this other stuff is nice. It gets me through the day. Um, As long as I have the energy, I, I will continue to work as best I can, but deep down inside that I know that um, my world is is anonymous and my world is family, and if someone respects about respects me for what I do or what I say, I mean, that's, that's great to me. That means a lot to me, but well, I don't you, go seek it out. Well, I don't you, seek it out. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, you say you're anonymous, but the reaction to your health scare in 2014 lets me know right. that pe- people love you, and I do want to talk about that. But just to, sure. to, to put a loop on EEI, so you get there at 940, you leave it at 202. 
uh, having hosted that show for a couple of years with Lou, I, I felt like it was Switzerland. You, know, you you would see the guys in the morning, you'd see them in the afternoon, and you were sort of in the middle of the two. It sounds like that for you, you did your show, and there was very little interaction with John and Jerry in the morning or Glenn in the afternoon. There, uh, Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but there were, were there any battles off the air with the morning or afternoon no, show for no, you? No, not particularly. It was more... It was more just me just being, you know, missing in action, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I, I, there weren't any battles because I chose not to get involved in them. And I chose not to buddy-buddy up with anybody there. Um, shows beforehand, shows afterhand, um, you know, Dale, whatever. Um, you know, I think that I tried to be as professional as I could be. I tried to bring something to the table if something was warranted. Um, and the reason why I would not want to do it again, Mud, is that I think that for some reason that, you know, that I don't want to kind of, you know, swim with the fishes, if you will, in the shark tank, because I think that's kind of what it takes now. And I'm not really like that personally. Um, uh, I'd like to think that, that, you know, that I'm information first and opinion second, although I do have my opinions and I think they're important. But you know, it goes in one ear and out the other. You know, I, I have my my likes and dislikes like everybody else. I have my quirks like everybody else. But today's day and age of, you know, people that talk for four minutes when 20 seconds will do, I don't need it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it's uh, – I'll leave it to the younger people to – to bat out, you know, the Chris Sale talk 24-7 and let it go at that. So you walk away, like you said, in 2005. Uh, yeah. Were, were the negotiations, you know, at the end of it? I know you talked about it with the newspapers at that time. Were they were they tough negotiations? Did they get down and dirty? Or was this just, here's my number? Guys, if you don't hit it, I'm, I'm walking away. It's a long story. I mean, look, I mean, I, I don't really want to get involved in it. Um, there was a lot of other mitigating factors there as well, which I really don't want to get into, to be honest with you. Um, but in some ways, I think my time was up there. And in many ways, the shelf life had kind of run out in many ways. And I think they had somebody in mind that might, um, for the corporation, might placate uh, the situation there. I don't know. But um, I know that the kind of revenues that the Dale and Numi program brought to Intercom, and I'm well aware of that. And I had friends in the sales department who told me about that, and I was well aware of it. And when I went to negotiate, um, you know, the money wasn't there. Now they have their business to run. You know, I did my thing. But again, uh, let me reiterate, it was a blessing in disguise mm -hmm. because having quit that job, and I did – would not agree to what number that they had offered me, and they did offer me a certain number to move on for another three years. It got me the job at NBC Sports. I mean, yeah. can you imagine now, uh, a year after the fact, or less than a year, you know, I get hired full-time. I do three or four years of working on Sunday night, a football night in America, where I go. The, the greatest gig in the world is to go to an NFL game each and every Sunday, ask my two or three questions to Giants at Pittsburgh or Patriots at San Diego or Denver at Houston and get these guys walking off the field. I mean, I did two years of, of um, reporter in playoffs, wildcard playoffs. Took me to Seattle to see the Redskins play the Seahawks. Uh, took me to to, uh, 
to Kansas City to watch Peyton Manning play the Indianapolis Colts. I was a reporter on the sidelines for you know, the National Football League, you know, uh, during playoffs. So um, that brought me to the Olympics, uh, helped me out with um, hosting a year doing hockey and being on with Mike Milbury and uh, Eddie Olchuk, who I now do horse racing with, and Doc Emmerich was doing the play-by-play at the time. And, you know, I had a year of that under my belt. It also took me to France, and I did a year with CBS on the tour, which was another great experience for me. So um, I, I don't know, Mutt, if, if I was able to re-sign with WEI if that NBC job had been available to me or whether the CBS thing and my my one year or my one month of the Tour de France, would that have opened up? I don't know. Would I have done the Olympics? I don't know. Who the hell knows? I mean, I don't know what the roads turn. It's just You just do it and things open up for you when you least expect it. And so that's why I say I think that, that leaving the radio world was a blessing in disguise. Well, and you get to do all these great things. And one of those right. things, as you mentioned, in addition to the Olympics and NFL football, you are a horse racing guy. You were, That was sort of one of your, I won't say shit, but one of your personas on the air, talking about gambling with pickles and making your picks on your show. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that uh, I was a huge fan of yours. And so I'm down at Mohegan Sun doing their Breeders' Cup event in 2014, and we're all looking for you on TV, and lo and behold, Numi's not there, I believe it's Santa Anita, uh, to do the Breeders' Cup, and it, it comes out that uh, you couldn't get on the plane there, Bob, and people were so effing worried about you, the people that love you, that's, I have more questions about that than any other thing I've done, and you had suffered a stroke, and I, I can only imagine you know, what you went through when what what made you not get on that plane and led you to eventually, you know, uh, you suffered the stroke and end up in the, the hospital and wake up a couple of days later? Yeah, I don't remember most of it, thank goodness. Um, but this what this happened to me, um, let's see, we're now in 2016, so this would have been, um, I believe, late October, early November of 2014. Yeah. And I was uh, scheduled on a Tuesday to get on a flight from Boston to Los Angeles to get ready for the Breeders' Cup, which would have happened on a Saturday. And I remember uh, that the day before that I was um, kind of violently sick to my stomach. And I thought I had food poisoning, to be honest with you, because this was unusual for me. And um, so I didn't get on the plane on Tuesday, thank goodness, to go to Los Angeles. And the next thing I know, I'm in Mass General Hospital. And my wife comes to see me and says, um, do you know what happened to you? And I said, no. And she said, you had a massive stroke and you had seven hours of brain surgery. I said, I did. I had no idea. And um, I don't really remember too much of it. Um, don't wish to. Um, I inquire about it from time to time. But I was more worried about um, the comeback than I was the actual event because stuff happens to you. So what happened in the meantime? Well, I'm certainly indebted to the surgeons that were there, and I wound up in the Spalding Rehab Facility once I got out of Mass General, and you know, inpatient, outpatient, and home for about five or six months. And... Um, <laughs> Um, don't really remember the actual event, but do remember very vividly being 
at Spalding and had a physical rehab where I had to literally have a walker to take me around the, quote, gym there. And it took me, I could not walk it in a minute and a half. It took me an hour with a walker. And I had to get on a mattress. And the nausea was so great to me. And um, so that's kind of how you start. And then you just, you know, follow along, you know, the path, the nurses, the rehab people, et cetera. And I went home and through the loving care of my wife, who, you know, kind of ushered me through the whole thing. She was there from the start. She's still there now, backed me 100%. And through time, I was lucky. I was able to formulate words and wound up, you know, walking fairly well. I had a cerebellum injury, which is to the brain, is kind of affects your. The after effects are nausea and headaches, which I still have a little bit of, but balance and equilibrium and short-term memory. So the short-term memory part of it, I take a lot of notes when I do ad-libbing, and if I'm on NBC, um, I'm really cognizant that the people that I work with are aware of what I'm doing, and I do have my notes available to me in case I do fuck out on the air. Um, and at Comcast, I, I say that people have been very kind to me, and that would be Kevin Miller, the news director, and you know, the whole crew um, who kind of have ushered me through. And when I went to do, um, you know, the kind of walk me through just doing like hard news, 30 minutes, I practiced for four or five times before I was able to get through it. I had to deal with the light and I had to deal with a lot of stuff that went down there. And, you know, I don't say this at all to be, a hero because I'm not. I just followed along what the doctor said, what the nurses said, what the rehab people said. And I have a memory to this day, Mutt, of being in the Spalding Rehab facility and watching young women, men, 16 years old, 18 years old, 12 years old, they're lucky if they ever talk again. They're lucky if they ever walk again. Um, so imagine how fortunate I am. And if I scuff it around a little bit, as I do on a golf course now, and you know, shoots 10-stroke high, what difference does it make? It doesn't make any difference. I can still work. I can still, you know, through practice, do the news at Comcast. I can still do opinion shows. I can still do horse racing. I can still do all of that stuff. And I promised myself that when I did go back, that the only way I would go back is if that I wasn't viewed as some kind of circus performer or whatever. I didn't want anybody to know one whit what had happened to me unless they asked. So if someone had watched TV and flipped it on and saw me, they'd say, he doesn't look any different to me. He's doing the same thing he's doing. Well, during... so that was that's what I wanted. I wanted to hear that, and um, and I wanted my performance quote to be that way. I didn't want it to be viewed as um, a freak show. I hate that. I, I don't want to be a freak show. I didn't want to be it uh, in front of a camera. I don't want to be it in in you know, my enjoyable time playing golf. I certainly didn't want to be at uh, handicapping my horses, which I love to do. In fact, last year I actually won the media the media uh, contest for handicapping during my recovery, <laughs> uh, you know, as a stroke victim. And 
It's so funny. I one of the guys that I talked to, uh, this tremendous neurologist at Mass General, is uh, Jerome Schmarman, and he's involved with cerebellum patients, and says to me, um, you know, we'd like you to be kind of like the poster child of cerebellum. And I said, doctor, I really appreciate it. I said, but I don't really have the stomach for it. I said, I still want to be as anonymous as possible. So find someone else if you don't mind. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that's extremely lucky because the fact that I can talk now and walk now pretty well, I mean, I might bump into a few walls with my cerebellum or I might, you know, tuck on a few extra, you know, points on my golf score or whatever. But all things considered of what could have been, I could have been in rehab still trying to walk and talk and do all that as a stroke guy. So, uh, you know, I, I count my blessings every day. Well, and Bob, as part of that recovery, I, I guess you know, as you're recovering and you're going through the, the the walker and you're going through the mattress, is one of the goals to to get back and and to be on TV, or was there a point where you thought this is it might not happen for me? This this might be I might not be you know making my living on television anymore. Um, well, yeah, the thought crossed my mind, um, no doubt. But again, my goal was that um, I thought I could do it because, you know, I could speak fairly well. You know, the short-term memory was a problem. Um, but when you get, when you do like a 30-minute news show, uh, you know, I've always been able to write fairly quickly. And once I kind of got used to the light and reading a teleprompter and kind of going through the motions, if you will, um, I've had so much experience doing this month that, you know, I like to say that a, a baboon could do it because, you know, I don't want to, put it down, but it's not something that, that I think is that difficult for me. Um, it's a little more difficult doing ad-lib shows because stuff that I used to just rattle off my head, now I take a lot of notes, and I have things that I have to think about and remember and talk about, but the notes help me a lot in that regard in terms of that short-term memory part of it. So I think the beauty of my life at Comcast has been that they've been so nice to me and appreciate the fact that I can go into a studio and do a half hour hard news. I could do uh, Gary's show, which I do from 6.30 to 7. I can do Michael's show from 10 to 10.30 if necessary. I could host. I could do whatever is necessary. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of, again, not typecast. I'm not an anchorman per se. I'm not a pundit per se. I'm not an interviewer per se. I'm kind of a man for all seasons. Well, and you you're also a handicapper. And, you know, people, they, I, they, Callahan gets on me all the time. Like, what? how can you talk about racing? How can you have interest in it? And I think you, you, you said it to me at one point, or I read you say it. And it, it's, some people have crossword puzzles. Some people have handicapping. And I remember talking to you after your, your stroke, Bob, and you would, you said to me and, uh, that you thought the handicapping helped you and helped your recovery as a racing fan, getting the racing form and handicapping a couple of races a day as part of your recovery was therapeutic and, and helped you in the day-to-day of recovering from that stroke. No doubt. Uh, handicapping to me is intellectual stimulation. And anybody who doesn't think that doesn't quite get it. I invite everybody who has a, uh, a laptop to go to this website called gamesforthebrain.com gamesforthebrain.com and those kind of puzzles were were uh, shown to me by uh, outpatients when I was in the outpatient when I was home really and people would come to my door and I would talk about 
you know, using my brain actively to kind of get back into the swing of things. And I think the handicapping piece of it fit beautifully into this because when you handicap to this day, you are using your brain, you're ferreting things out, you're seeing what works and what doesn't work. Um, I know much that uh, on any given day, and I'm experienced enough to know that um, if I walk into Saratoga or Del Mar or whatever, that I know as much or not more than anybody else that walks through those windows. Does that mean I'm going to win every day? No, don't quit your day job. But as uh, an, an adjunct, if you will, um, I'm into it in that sense. And, you know, I win some days, I lose some days, but I know that in the in the ultimate end of things that I will come out on top because I will hit pick sixes for a couple hundred thousand dollars one day. In fact, the anniversary of my hitting for $210,000 happened this week. I didn't even know about that until somebody told me at Del Mar. And it was done online. And again, it was just using my noodle and, and intellectual stimulation. And I'm patient and I don't waste a lot of money. And when something's there, I'm not afraid to go for it. But when something's not there, I don't jump in and waste money. So um, I've been fortunate enough that I've made enough money that I've been able to handicap. And if I got to dip in a couple thousand there to, you know, to help my bank account, I can. If not, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put into my bank account what I make in some of my pick fives or pick sixes, or if I make a big hit on a trifecta or whatever. Um, so for me, it's it's been um, a tremendous help to me, and not just that I enjoy doing it, but it's also you know, using my brain. And I know that people who get older as I am, um, they need to use their brain as much as they can. And, you know, I feel badly for people like Pat Summit. You know, I'm, I'm, I know my mother died from dementia. And I think that, you know, maybe she might have lived a few years longer if she used her brain more. I don't even know that, to be honest with you. But I'd like to think that's the case. So, um, Given the stroke, given the handicapping, I think that I try to use my brain as much as I can, and I think it's beneficial to me. Do you do you do you look? It's just the generic dumb question that I'm going to ask. But do you look at life life differently now, Numi, after have, going through that and recovering from that than you did before you know, suffering that stroke? Uh, yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I, I I think that you know I'd like to think that. As you get older, and you know, I'm in my 60s now, that, um, and I've worked in this business a long time, that you know, I, I try to recognize changes in it, and I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And here at Comcast, we have a number of people that work very hard at what they do, and many of them are in their 20s and 30s, and they're just starting out, and they're all maybe like you, they've got their little machines out and they're reading all the tweets and they're all excited about this and all excited about that. And I just, I kind of sit back and, and I kind of laugh. Um, but, you know, I also recognize that that's part of the world. That's how it works now. Um, but I think that my recovery from a stroke has, and my experience in the business has taught me that what is important is working in Beijing in the 2008 Olympics important? Yeah. But is my relationship with my wife, Michelle Uchi, more important? Yes, absolutely. So I try to communicate that to her when I can. But, you know, one of my um, 
quirks, if you will, is uh, maybe it's a little Germanic heritage that I have in me from my father or whatever that I maybe I don't communicate with her as well as I should. But um, I know that in my heart that my relationship with her is very dear to me. Uh, my relationship with my family is important to me. Uh, my relationship with anybody who I know is important to me, and I might not be able to communicate it as I should, but um, it's more important. As much as I love work, as much as I love handicapping, as much as I love going and doing my shows, that is secondary and will always be secondary because ultimately I think that as you get older – that these things become more important to us. They should be more important to us. And um, I feel badly for people who think that going on the air for, you know, three hours a day on radio is the most important thing in the world. Because it's not the most important thing in the world, okay? It's, it's your job. It's important. It's not the most important thing in the world. It's your relationship with your wife, your family, your friends. That is the most important thing. And you're, back, you're on Comcast. We see you with Gary. We see you doing Sports Central. We see you with Felger. We see you yelling at Marloni and McAdam when they're acting up on the baseball show on Sunday nights. I speak for everybody who's glad to see you back on TV. You look great. You sound great yelling at those guys at the baseball show. And I look forward to seeing you up at Saratoga this summer, my friend. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. All right, thanks as always for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. If you want more podcasts like this with guests like Artie Lang, where, who else is going to have Artie Lang and fucking Bob Ryan on the same podcast? Or David Portnoy and uh, John Tomasi. If you want to listen to podcasts like this, you go to iTunes, Stitcher, you go to WEI.com, you go to the mobile app. When you go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. That's going to help us out a lot. If you want more of these, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. Make sure you do that for me. That is a command. Now do it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.